Support for Waveform comes from Anthropic. So looking for an AI solution for a business, it might be time to check out the Claude 3 family from Anthropic, your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. So whether you're powering a customer chat experience or doing complex R&D or need advanced analysis, Anthropic can help provide you with frontier intelligence. So if you're looking for speed, power, or anything in between, the Claude 3 family offers AI models for a variety of tasks and budgets. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. Hey, what is up, people of the internet? Welcome back to another episode of the Waveform Podcast. I'm your host, kinda, today. I'm Marquez. You might notice it looks a little different and sounds a little different from normal because Andrew's not here, first of all, and I'm in my basement. That is because uh, I and a lot of the rest of the team on the podcast all got COVID this past week. Not to worry, we're all feeling better, uh, thankfully, but we're just being safe about it. We're not going back in until we all test negative. Um, But in the meantime, that left us out of the studio. And it's crazy. We've realized that over time we've had all these backup plans where we're like, oh, if one of us is sick, you know, the other can host and vice versa. That's cool. But if we're all out, what do we do? And uh, I think we've realized we've had 140 consecutive weeks of this pod and didn't even blink. Didn't even realize we'd done that streak for that long, which is crazy. So we didn't want to leave you hanging with nothing, but we came up with a really cool idea, which is that basically we just got all these Spotify wrapped things and everybody sees what's on the top of their playlist this year. And actually, if you upload a podcast to Spotify, you get a wrapped. And what we realize is Waveform has grown immensely in the past couple months and the past year. And we're super grateful for that. But what that also means is a lot of you listening and watching here are new, which also means that a lot of you haven't seen or heard some of our best episodes from the past year or two, especially the ones with guests. And this is one of my favorite things we've gotten to do in the past few years, which is like have great fun conversations with fellow creators and interesting people. And honestly, our guest list is just straight heat. A lot of bangers on there. So if you've missed them, that's what this is all about. This is gonna be a sort of a little curated highlights section of some of my favorite guests we've had on Waveform in the past year or two. Uh, And if you want to go back and listen to the full episodes, well, this is a great opportunity to do that. So just uh, filling in for this week. Hopefully we're back next week. Wish us luck. But in the meantime, these are some of my favorite guests we've had on the Waveform Podcast lately. Let's get into it with a conversation with one of my favorite creators, a YouTuber in the car space, the man, the myth, the legend himself, Doug Demira. But yeah, it's an interesting world. And yes, you know, part of the problem, I think, with the... The believing what companies say is an interesting concept. You know, the, the Tesla Twitter people are just a completely different level of insane that I've never experienced before. And what that company says is is the word of God to them and, and that they don't believe that there's any, ever any uh, – and I'm pretty positive about Teslas compared to most car reviewers. Um, and yet I can still get in – I still get like vicious complaints from some of these people sometimes because I don't believe this thing. Yeah, that that, that might be the – they might be the most defended cars by people who have never actually used them, which is very strange to me because <laughs> in the tech world, there's there are, there are rampant fanboys of certain companies and products even if they don't use them. Like a product will come out from a company they love and if even if they've never used it, they will trust the gospel that is that company's advertising messaging. And if your review goes against it, you must be paid or you must be a shill or you're a fanboy of the other guy. <laughs> 
frequency of which I'm accused of being paid is quite unbelievable. I'm sure you get this also. I don't get it as much as I as, as I see some other people get it as much as I expect. I think it's really clear that I try to be really objective. But still, like, and some of the stuff I'm being accused of being paid about is so insane. And I'm just like, what could you possibly be thinking? But that's, I guess, the reality when you're dealing with the general public. Yeah, there's got to be a reason why you don't like the same thing I like. You must Maybe it's because you're paid. Right. I don't know. Right. That's... It can't be because my taste is yeah. wrong or, or or our tastes differ or whatever. And the other thing, the thing that really is crazy to me, I suspect you don't see this quite as much because the gadgets you're reviewing are less valuable, although you probably do. But in the car world, the amount of personal investment people have in the cars is insane. I frequently make fun of my own cars. Like they're unreliable. I own this convertible Mercedes G-Wagon, which I think is one of the ugliest cars ever made. I talk about that. I'm like totally fine with all that. But when I say something like negative like that about somebody else's car, people, it's it's like you insulted their child. Yeah. And I'm like, how could you take a possession this personally? I never have understood that. You know what's that funny behavior. about that? I think I think it's, uh, I actually understand that in the car world because that is probably one of the top two most expensive, important buying decisions you make. And so in a way it reflects a lot about you and your priorities and your knowledge of the things you could have done, right? So if you get, you spend all that effort and energy and you make this huge purchase in your life and someone says something bad about it, you kind of feel like you need to defend yourself against it. But in the, right. in the tech world, I see a very high level of this around smartphones and i think it's because not that the, not that they're super valuable but because they are some of the most personal pieces of tech that you can possibly own what is more personal oh interesting it's always exactly. with you it has all your equipment it's, it runs your, your life basically your... you're holding it all the time it's yeah, it's a borderline yeah. fashion accessory to some people like to to speak right. negatively about about someone's smartphone purchase decision would be like speaking negatively about their hairstyle or something. It's like, that's a part of me. And that's the way people react, which is always funny. Um, yeah. I've just, I've never gotten into the, the things that I possess. I've never gotten into personally defending them. Even the cars. I get that it's an expensive decision, but like, you made it, like, who cares? You know, like if that's what you decided, then that's what you decided. And, and I just, oh. I think people are so, so, so crazy, but they can be so militant um, about some of this stuff. And sometimes I will say something in a video and just be like nervous. Like I know. I'm oh, yeah, huge yeah, yeah, yeah. You always know. Yeah. <laughs> I know there's a, uh, th these days I like to defend it just by recognizing like smartphones aren't like young anymore. Like it's kind of hard to get a bad new phone. If you're anywhere in the 300 plus dollar price range of new phones from the big companies, like you can't really get a bad one anymore. Uh, does it feel kind of the right. same way in the car industry? Like, obviously, if you buy yeah. an old car now, it can be bad. But if you buy a new car, right. it's probably fine. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's kind of funny. I get Sometimes I get friends or, or family members coming up to me and saying, listen, I'm, I've spent hours researching this. I've watched your videos, watched everybody's videos. I'm trying to figure out the best small crossover to buy. Is it the CRV or the RAV4 or the Mazda CX-5? And they'll be floored when I tell them, which dealership is physically closer to your home? <laughs> like we're not talking about none of these will be bad. Like you're not, you're not going to make a mistake here. There's very, 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 very few bad cars. Maybe none on sale yeah. right now. Um, and so that makes it things a little bit easier. Yeah, you're not. I'm not ever starting review ripping up a car anymore. It wasn't quite like that when I first started. There were some like Maseratis were pretty weak in uh, four or five years ago, and I did some tough reviews on those that got a lot of pushback. 
But generally speaking, I, sometimes I just find it insane that people can even get to that level of granularity. If it was me, the CX-5 versus the whatever, which sales person was nicer? Yeah. <laughs> just, just This is not a decision you need my help with. Do you have any regrets from things you said in videos in the past? Things you wish you didn't, oh, maybe wish you edited right. out or... or <laughs> I always regret when I make a mistake. Oh, I'm yeah, sure yeah. you feel like this too. Like, and and sometimes they're small, but sometimes like I still lie awake at night, you know. Um, but no, I, I I don't think I've ever been wrong, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's like there's being a little bit wrong where it's like maybe you slip and and say the wrong number or the wrong part name or whatever, but it doesn't substantially change the point you were trying to make. And then there's like being wrong where you're like this is bad when it wasn't bad or this is yeah right, you know, right. relying right making a making an objective individual mistake like a number or something those are annoying i always wish i could take them out i guess the flood of emails starts coming in immediately and mm -hmm. i'm like oh crap but actually being wrong about a review i don't know i i like to think that i got them all right the viewers may have different opinions but that's kind of the whole point of this you know that's kind of what we're doing here uh I wanted yeah. to ask you about your background because you came from, uh, I guess I would say a more traditional media. I mean, you were writing basically before you were making videos and then yeah. went to being a YouTuber. Yeah. And in this tech world, there is there are tech writers and there are tech YouTubers. And the tech YouTubers, I feel like, are still trying to earn some level of respect and 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 consideration that traditional media have always had. Do you find, now that you've right. been in both worlds, do you find there's a big difference between doing written and doing YouTube in the way you talk to brands and companies, for example? You know, that's a really interesting question. A lot of people ask me just on a general level, how do the brands handle YouTube? But it's a really interesting question, the difference between writing and, and YouTube. One, one important point is I never wrote for print. Um, and in the car space, print is still, probably this isn't true in the tech space anymore, I hope. But print is is still in the car space sort of viewed as like the, the old medium that's the most important. The brands still view it as the most important, which I think is beyond insane. But um, compared to digital writing versus, di versus YouTube, I don't see a huge difference. But I still have an enormous amount of trouble getting some brands to, to care about YouTube. And I can look at them and say, look, I'll get two, three million views. This is more than the circulation of these magazines that you're bending over backwards to try to impress. Um, you know, I, this is going to be a big thing. And it's still like, you're an influencer, you're not a journalist. We don't, you know, some for some of them, some of the brands have clearly yeah. figured it out. But it's amazing because there are studies out there that say over 80% of new car shoppers will watch at least one video before buying. And I think it's probably more like 90 plus, you know, I don't know who's yeah. not, right? And I try to tell them that and it's just kind of an old, there's still an old mentality of that sort of thing. I imagine in the tech space, it's a little bit better, I hope. Um, I mean, there is some element of both sides to it. Like I, I think it probably depends on the demographic. I think for a lot of people under probably about 30, somewhere around my age maybe, uh, they look at YouTube and they look at videos just as seriously as they would anything else. If we were buying a phone, for example, like you're going to watch a new video about the phone before it comes out or before you buy it. Right. But, you know, there's obviously a lot of older people like my, my grandparents basically can't find a way to acknowledge anything that I do unless it's printed somewhere. And they're like, okay, now that's cool. That is real. Like, that's very cool. 
So I, I always found that funny. And I, I recently started contributing to Top Gear magazine, which is a printed magazine. And that was the same like sort of experience. I've been making these autofocus videos for like a couple months now. It's not as many, but Top Gear magazine. Oh, that's that's established. Right. That's, that's traditional. Something. So that that's always I, it's always been there. It is kind of funny. I um when this started and people would start coming up to me on the street and recognize me and such, people people would say, Oh, you're internet famous. And I I I've tried to it's an interesting thing when you get to a certain level. I mean, you it's the internet is it now. I, I don't know like TV actors anymore, really. Like when I was a kid, you grew up with like friends and Seinfeld. You knew all those people. It would be, if you ever saw one on the street, which you, uh, I would be like, oh yeah. my God, this is the yeah. craziest thing in the world. But that stuff is fractured and splintered so much that like this is kind of like what it is now. But yes, it's very hard to explain that to older generations. And I still have older relatives being like, so are you still doing that that video stuff? <laughs> you still, yes. You're still doing that? Yes, mom. And I'm like, yeah, I, uh, I'm doing it. Yeah. yeah. All right, next up, a chat with a fellow creator as well. This one in the tech space. This is with Quinn from Snazzy Labs. Do you think uh, full self-driving is like the future of all cars on the road? Like Tesla can get really good at this as good as they want, but there's still going to be a very large percent of other cars on the road not doing self-driving for many, many more years. Is that like a future you can imagine? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the question I, I think that we again get to is, A, when do we reach the point where in all instances, computers and self-driving cars are safer than human drivers? Up until that they're always safer, I don't think there's going to be regulatory requirements or whatever. And then the other side of the equation is when does it become accessible to everyone? Because if I can only buy a $20,000 car and I'm used to and, and now I need a car that drives itself, you know, how long is it going to take for this tech that's in Tesla's now or in Tesla's 10 years from now going to come down market to the masses? And I think it's going to be decades before nobody's really driving their cars anymore. I mean, it might not even happen in our lifetime. Um, but I'm a bit uh, more skeptical than a lot of people, certainly more than Elon Musk. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah. so maybe it's coming sooner than we think. Um, and we're, we've certainly made huge steps in the last few years. And Tesla's system, make no mistake, is impressive. But I think it's going to be years, probably at least more than five, probably 10, before you can get in your Tesla, you put the address in where you want to go, and you don't have to watch the road a single time. It's a long time away. Yeah, it feels like every year at CES, we see like a, a prototype of a car where like the driver's seat faces backwards mm-hmm. and the yeah. screen is like a projection and you don't even yeah. look at the outside of the car. It's like, that's yeah. very optimistic. And yeah. I, I applaud that optimism, but I don't know how soon that's going to happen. Yeah. I feel like I, the the approach towards everyone going electric is much more quickly happening and that's frankly more interesting to me. Yeah, and I think that that kind of ultimately will affect the world at a at a greater I think that's more valuable to the planet and to civilization moving to more sustainable fuels and electric vehicles than it is to to fix full self-driving. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it's important if we can get to the point where we've reduced the millions of of automobile crashes that happen every year and and millions of deaths that happen, that's awesome. But uh, it chicken before the egg, I guess. Like you got to <laughs> one thing at yeah. a time. And I think we're still a ways out. And the transition to electric vehicles is is probably more likely. But the great thing that Tesla's demonstrated is that you can kind of do both at the same time. So I know the the Cybertruck was going to be a lot of people's first truck also. Yeah. Probably for a lot of the same reasons. Like mm-hmm. if, if you didn't think you needed a truck at all, but you were 
somehow enamored with other parts of it, like the fact that it's an EV or it has this this crazy design or the the quad in the back, whatever else it is about that, it was it was going to be a lot of people's first truck. Yeah. Um, but I guess well, yeah, the R one T. Do you want me to say something controversial? I would love that. <laughs> I would love that. Go. For I mean, it. I think that the F one fifty. No, I'm going to get in trouble by people. The F-150 is the <laughs> truck you want. If you want a, a kind of everyday truck, I'm going to haul lumber from Home Depot occasionally. I want to go to the grocery store. But if you're towing stuff every day, you're not buying an F-150. You're buying a super duty uh, or a heavy duty truck from one of these larger brands. And so yeah. these these early electric vehicles are not going to replace that because those are people that need to tow 20,000 pounds, hundreds of miles a day, and they're out on a ranch. And they're not people that are interested in these small form factor um, trucks. And I think that the F-150 is probably unique in the sense that it's the only truck, uh, I guess the entry-level uh, Silverado is and the Tacoma kind of is, but they're these these small trucks that are mostly just bought by normal people that go to the grocery store, but they yeah. are powerful and capable enough to tow a boat or whatever. And these early kind of EV trucks are more grocery store getters the than first. they are. I want to haul, right. you know, haze and bales, or I don't know what people do with trucks. <laughs> that was my thing is like, okay, I've seen all these videos about people who are like, this is why I have a truck. This is why I use a truck. Anytime yeah. I need to carry something or like yeah. I need to put a bunch of rocks in the back. I'm like, I've never seen any of this happening, but okay, I'll, I'll trust it. Um, but yeah, you're right. The second I learned, there's definitely a, a name for, I forgot the name of this phenomenon, but when you learn something, you start seeing it everywhere. Oh, we yeah. did the video mm -hmm. on the F-150 Lightning and we learned about how popular it was. And then I just, I couldn't stop seeing F-150s everywhere, all over the highways, at every grocery store, there's F-150s all over the road. It's the best selling car in America. It's the number one selling car, yeah. number one selling vehicle. Yeah. And that made it much more apparent that it's like, no, these, this isn't like the, the landscaping truck or like mm -hmm. the actual like heavy duty use. This is just like people who just get them, who just want one. Yeah, they're fun. And uh, yeah, it turns out I can put like two bicycles in the back of my car without any like equipment and just drive around with them. So I've, I've never needed a pickup truck, mm -hmm. but maybe one day I'll <laughs> carry rocks around. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Next up, a conversation I couldn't wait to have, which is like your favorite creator's favorite creator. And I mean this because I also love their channel. Uh, they just talk about creators in general, the creator economy. I got to chat with Colin and Samir. There is one thing that I think we would like to come back that would help us a lot. And that's, and I get why they took it away, but annotations coming yeah. back for us would be huge. I mean, ultimately being able to re-upload a video in the same position would be the best, but I also yeah. kind of understand why, you know, you don't put that in. But the amount of times we make these like very, very small mistakes that don't change the video at all. Like we say the new iPhone has titanium rails instead of aluminum rails and the, the amount of people that yeah. call us out for stuff like that, if we could just toss an annotation in there like- Good for engagement though. Uh, yeah, yeah for engagement, it's not engagement. Bad. yeah. <laughs> that is true. Uh, it, yeah, it just yeah. gets to this point where like I'd love to just put a little like asterisk like we meant the Snapdragon 888 not the mm. 887 or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I think in the tech world that's specifically it would be so useful. Like product names are eight long eight words long and you have to get every single one right and specs are very very long and very detailed numbers and you just yeah. want to be able to just add a little asterisk mm -hmm. inside a video and when there is one the best I can do is pin a comment in the top of the description yeah. but there's no way to just or just tweet about it, and, but that's not on YouTube, so it doesn't really the, help. I, yeah. I don't get why a partner, sh like having partners, like get annotations. I remember the days of you yeah. know like twelve annotations or mm -hmm. a, a full screen clear one. So when you click on it, it brings you to a link. 
get rid of that, but yeah, partners mm-hmm. with annotations feel like it would make sense. I do think that in in a tech review, like purposefully sometimes, not not <laughs> not the tech itself, but even like fumbling or saying a word that's completely off at times, like would create a lot of like you know retention of like wait mm-hmm. what did he just say? Yeah, we we did it one time in a short, which was really fun. Really? Um, yeah, we said. Uh, we we, had inter- of, we said the head of Robert Kinsel YouTube. Yeah. Like we should have said the head of YouTube Robert Kinsel uh-huh. yeah. said this, and we said the head <laughs> of Robert Kinsel yeah. tripled. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, that's funny. Like, mm. I think some people assume we'll say that's why we're doing it. Yeah, yeah. I think people assume <laughs> yeah. that that's what's happening yeah. when it really it's like we just went from reviewing a phone to reviewing a camera to reviewing a car to reviewing a tablet. Right. It's like I forgot that it's the triple eight. My bad. Right. Um, so annotations. I'll put in an. Anyway, mm-hmm. If anyone on YouTube is watching this. Annotation we'll please. take it. We'll test it for you. Yeah. yeah. I also think we're going to see video replies make a comeback. Really? Yeah. I liked video responses. Because now that they have YouTube shorts. Oh, yeah. Oh, true. Interesting. That, so they could tie in. So yeah. people would reply to videos with specific with a, short With form. a short. Yeah. Yeah. I and that really would create like that. more creators because yeah. there's this whole ecosystem where even people like us, we talk about YouTube creators. Mm-hmm. So you could just go into the comments, drop a short video. Yeah. yeah. And start was, building an audience. Mm-hmm. That was a really big part. I mean, you see the way TikTok does it now where videos are embedded in comments, but like that was a that was a whole YouTube ecosystem thing. There were reply channels. Yeah. And under any video, you could either so if I was the creator, I could enable anyone to submit a video reply and they'd all just show up. But then people started spamming them or people would just like spam replies or whatever. So you could only approve, uh, you could set it to approve only and then approve whichever ones you wanted. Mm. And so you would often find that the biggest creators would always approve replies from the same creators. And then those creators who were just replying to people would have their own ecosystem because of the people they replied to, which is fascinating. And I I really like the idea of bringing shorts back as video replies or bringing video Mm -hmm. replies back as shorts. Because if we made a video about you... Yeah. And then we approved you to be able to, to make a video to reply it. if we got something wrong or if you wanted to add something. Yeah. Yep. And then it's on my channel, so people link to right. what mm-hmm. I just made a video mm-hmm. about. Interesting. That's actually really good. It's honestly the best idea I've heard for shorts. Yeah. Uh, actually, yeah. I'd love to talk to you guys about shorts yeah. to do them. We've been pretty um, negative about them, maybe. I I'm mean, like, or we've been vocal about them, I'll say, but we don't really yeah. do them. They're right. very... N- against not against but they're not like like our regular content they're very different they're definitely not our original content and that's like on the main channel the number one thing we know is like we have a format Mm -hmm. and we're sticking with it and we love it so obviously a a 40 second video doesn't fit in that format. a vertical 40 second video in the same feed as our regular videos Mm -hmm. feels off yeah but you guys have you've done shorts on the main channel you guys have experimented Mm -hmm. with shorts in the past do you how would you summarize first of all your experience with youtube shorts because i've had i've heard variety of versions of responses very, I mean, very positive yes very like positive. generally positive i would say that for us you know we had um we had a creator on our show who goes by nas daily and he, he said something to us about platforms which is really interesting around like just the the concept of supply and demand there are some platforms that have enough supply of content and enough demand they've reached equilibrium there's 50,000 pieces of videos uploaded per day and 500 million viewers per day. Like that's average of 10 views per video or whatever. That's equilibrium platforms. There are platforms that don't have equilibrium, right? Where they have incredible demand for views, not enough supply for content. That is the place you want to be in. And that's why creators have such big opportunity Mm -hmm. uh, because the platform wants that content. They want to experiment with it. They want to try it. Yeah. But... 
on the other side of it, for us, what we notice is it takes us a really long time to make a video, but we have a lot of thoughts. Like we have quick takes mm -hmm. that we want to get out. And yes, there's, you know, there's a vlog or like just pop open the camera and start talking, but then there's still editing and like there's just so much. And I think yeah. vertical short form content lowered our barrier to entry to just have like some forgiveness around it and be like, it's okay. It's just a vertical video. Yeah. And we shoot it straight through the phone and we do some editing, but it is this first opportunity for us in a long time to film something and get it out on our YouTube channel in the same day. So if something happens, we can react to it. Yeah. yeah. And from our conversations with people at YouTube, the, you know, the, the shorts feed and the main channel feed, like short form videos and long form videos are kind of bifurcated in the back end. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, it's not one in the same. It's not like, you know, they know it's a different type yeah, of video. It's not going to bring your average view duration down or yeah, anything like that. Okay. So for us, we were like, okay, if there's no real big risk to the channel, yeah, why not? Like, why not try them? And from what we've seen is, you know, in the past 28 days, I think we've done around like 25 million views on the channel. And there's like, I think above 60% of that is coming from shorts. Mm. And um, that has just generally made our entire catalog of content uh, generate more viewership because there's just more traffic to our channel. Right. And so if you think about it as like a retail shop, like our channel is like a retail shop, we've just increased our traffic significantly. Mm -hmm. uh, and when that happens, then they're going to look at other stuff in our shop too, right? And so they're going to look at our back catalog. Right. They're going to look at all of our, and the, and our subscribers have grown. Our, our just overall brand exposure has has grown because of shorts. So, I mean, one of our shorts has 15 million views and that converted about 16 or 17,000 subscribers. Wow. Okay. And the value yeah. prop in the short is, you know, explaining things that are happening on YouTube and in media. Yeah. So if someone likes that and um, that's their first entrance mm -hmm. to us. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, so my experience has just been watching other people experiment with shorts. And so I've seen people try it on the main channel. I think I probably will eventually start a channel just to experiment with shorts because mm -hmm. I have a lot of ideas that I think would be good shorts. That channel should be called MKB. Shorts. It's just, just MKB. MKB. Oh, MKB. Oh, it's, 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 it's a shortened version. Short uh, version. Uh, yeah. Like like MKBHD. <laughs> but but yeah. also like what, the studio to me feels like an ex, uh, a space to experiment. Like yeah, why not really experiment yeah. with shorts on the studio channel? True. And especially for me, I look at it as like, Right now, again, that like the demand is high and the supply is just catching up. Right, that's what I was going to so, talk about. So, like, there's going to be a moment where that swaps. Viewership's yeah. going to change. It's going to they're going to they're going to test and iterate and test and iterate. And there's just a moment right now where they're just serving everyone the same small amount of shorts. Yeah, or they're just like at least from what we've seen, we've seen creators who have just taken shorts and grown to 6 million subs. True. There's a creator called Dental Digest. Have you seen him? No. He, he's like a dental creator. And okay. every short form video is is very similar. It's it's like one format where he tests different brushes and sees how well they brush his teeth. He's a dental student. He grew from zero to 6 million subs this year. Um, That's wild. All through shorts. And now he's making long form content. Right. And it's trending. And it's doing well. Yeah. yeah one, huh. of his, one of his longer form videos was uh, number one on trending. And so... He basically used shorts to build a platform. I think the thing that's dangerous is if the shorts have a completely different function than yep. the long form video, right? It has to all mm -hmm. fall in the same value prop. And if it does, then why not? I think it's yeah. YouTube's play to get creators from TikTok over to YouTube. It, as you saying it, it makes perfect sense because I've heard from multiple different people, you know, TikTok creators are getting huge, but ultimately even the biggest TikTokers yep. want to be YouTubers. Yep. 
but converting that from a whole different app is is hard. So if you're in the app already and you can just be on the same channel and there's the long form mm-hmm. contact that they now converted for, that's perfect. And they just took away the barrier to entry, which yeah, was exactly. really high. Now yeah. you can literally just repurpose a lot of your TikToks. Yeah. Download yeah. them, take the logo off, upload them to YouTube Shorts. And you could have if you've yeah, if you've been right. on TikTok for the last three years, you could have years worth mm-hmm. of yeah. valuable content ready to go. Also, though, you don't have to upload a thumbnail for shorts. I mean, we just don't even do you it. You don't have to, but you can. You can. Yeah. So if you go to our like videos tab, mm-hmm. it's not very aesthetic anymore, right? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like it, it is just these like vertical shorts mixed in with like our uh, edited thumbnail. So yeah. that is not very aesthetic. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it's just playing in a you know auto play, yeah. So you don't, you're not really thinking you're not about the, the thumbnail and the shorts. You're yeah. not thinking about the packaging because actually the audience isn't even choosing to watch it. The app is choosing the audience. Mm-hmm. And so it's like the inverse of the traditional YouTube video. And True. I think for that, it's it's really interesting. And then I think YouTube, the thing that YouTube has from an opportunity perspective is that TikTok, like you mentioned, a lot of TikTok creators are coming over to YouTube to mm-hmm. like graduate for their career, right? And we've heard the classic, you know, comparison on Twitter all the time of like, would you rather have 50,000 YouTube subscribers or 5 million TikTok followers? And almost, it's like so amazing that it always trends towards 50,000 YouTube subscribers just because you can make a career on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So I think this is the play to say, hey, we are the, we are YouTube, we are the better place to launch your career. So we'll have these short form videos too. And so if you were thinking about TikTok, just do it over here because then you're already building that foundation Mm -hmm. like Dental Digest where it's like, now you have 6 million subscribers. Now you have a career. It's YouTube. Yeah. You're already there. You're already there. Yeah. I think that one point you brought up about supply and demand is really interesting. The the When I see new features get launched, especially by YouTube, but kind of by any social network, I always really like diving into how much it looks like they've embraced this new feature. Mm-hmm. Does it look like they're just kind of trying it on the side? Or does it look like they are building part of their site around it? And to me, shorts does look like YouTube is like committing really hard Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. making shorts a big thing. Sometimes I see features where like, you know, for example, there's podcasts on Facebook or like there's video Mm -hmm. podcasts on Spotify and I don't really see that many of them. And I kind of wonder how committed they are because I see the feature ad, but I don't want to pivot my whole business around something that might disappear in a year. Mm -hmm. Um, So I am glad to see shorts get the attention that I mm-hmm. think that it's rightly deserving. And I'm I'm definitely going to want to experiment with a little yeah. bit. You know those restaurants and strip malls that say like, I, we have these in LA. I don't know if you guys have these here. It says like Chinese food and donuts. <laughs> it sounds amazing, <laughs> but I, I want one. <laughs> yeah, I see where you're going. Okay, all right, you see where <laughs> yeah. I'm going. But basically like for me personally, I'm, I want to go to a Chinese restaurant for Chinese food and I want to go to a donut shop for donuts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when I think about apps that are trying to do a lot, I think that like it overwhelms me. I'm like, I, are you are you a specialist in this? Is this mm-hmm. a thing you make? Are you trying to serve me Chinese food and donuts at the same time? Yeah. Because you saw an opportunity. So I think for me as a consumer, I, I, I'm so specific. Like I listen to podcasts on Spotify. I yep. watch video on YouTube. I might also be the old guy who's just like, doesn't want to change my ways. I worry about that. But- <laughs> But that's just who I am. Uh, and yeah. and I think a lot of consumers are like that too, where it's simplicity wins a lot and singular focus wins mm-hmm. a lot of the time. So yeah. YouTube was based in short form video. When we first started in 2011, we were uploading 20 second videos to YouTube because that's oh, yeah. where short form video lived. There was no Instagram video. There was no, there was no TikToks. There was no Vine at the time. So short form video lived on YouTube. Mm-hmm. So I think they actually do have an expertise in it where they can solve how to serve you videos. And then their video monetization is better than other platforms. So they will 
also solve down the line how those yeah. are monetized. I think it's only a matter of time until, you know, you open up the Instagram app and you're just in Reels. And potentially even with YouTube as well. Because mm -hmm. it's an extra step that keeps you away from a view, keeps you away from creator discovery. Right. All right, it's time for a quick ad break. We'll be right back. Okay, next up is a chat with uh, with Sam and Micah from So Crispy Media. This was hot off the heels of them helping to edit and produce the Mr. Beast Squid Game video that now has like 300 million views or something ridiculous. Probably my favorite Mr. Beast video ever. Uh, so this is a chat with them. Our channel audience really likes tech and gadgets and they really like film and production. And you guys are bringing that about as close together as possible. I mean, yeah. we're, we do a lot of... Uh, a lot of practical effects in here. Like yeah. almost all the stuff we do is practical. We have a motion graphics person, but that's mostly titles and stuff like that. You guys are bringing that just yeah. right on top of each other with like motion tracking and all that. And it's it's fascinating to watch. I think our audience would super, super enjoy that. And I was dying to see behind the stuff, yeah. the behind the scenes stuff of all of your things. Sam, you might uh, have a, a better way to explain this. I'll, I'll take a second, but there's kind of this mantra that, that we found that like we love to be able to like kind of like I'd explain like like find the marriage of technology and innovative yeah. technology and how can you apply that to storytelling like a lot of it boils down to like this idea that like you know we can take tech that's you know being used by massive hollywood studios and find ways to democratize it to be able to allow content creators to utilize it yeah. like a great example is like motion capture right like you know mm. 5 4 years ago that was very inaccessible to now for content creators like now we've been able to access motion control suits that are cheaper and we can use them and now we can find ways to like integrate those into our content. So we love to be able to find those like whether it's innovative tech or these little moments where, you know, new software's coming out, whatever, to be able to then say, oh hey, actually let's try to take this and let's tell a story with it. And that's kind of like the thought process of how it eventually evolves in these short films. Like we have a lot of really fun short film ideas for the sake of like, oh, that'd be a hilarious short film. Mm -hmm. But more often than not, there's even tech behind it that we can think, oh now that this is possible, Let's make a film this about this. This is the film you make on it. Right. I feel like that's the robots for us like that too. It's like, we have the robot. Now we think of an intro shot that we want to do of it. Or just we're begging for a video that we can use the the robot yeah. arm yeah. in. Yeah. yeah. He brings up an interesting point because it is kind of about like a marriage of tech where we have, we for a while, we, we've always like, we don't make a lot of content. But when we do, we try to make it something new and you're like refreshing with what we've recently learned. So a, a good instance of this is, Around 2015, 2016, we really got into VR. And then we did a, a cool uh, VR uh, series with Google Daydream where we made like three pieces of content. So we have like 25 minutes of content where it's literally in stereoscopic VR. And like that might not sound – that you might not know what that would mean. But for video-wise, like for video's sake, making a YouTube piece of content – in 360 degree with stereo, that's the equivalent of making like six videos per one video because yeah. you're literally doing a left eye and a right eye, and it's and then it had uh, stereo or it had a uh, spatial audio. So when you turned yeah, as well, it awesome. felt very yeah. immersive. I think this is the year I also did my only 360 video. Yeah, was like when it was yeah. like a huge deal, and I did yeah. a studio tour in 360, and I had to sort of like navigate around like having this camera in the middle and walking around it and yeah. touring things. It was fascinating, I and I remember that it was like back when the like the Odyssey was a thing, right? Yep. Was that yep. what it was? I think yeah. that's what we used. Yeah. Super 
super cool stuff, but yeah. we, we loved like getting involved with that and then figuring out a way to make our content with that. So when you watch those videos, it's like, those were a production nightmare. And I think if anyone who is like making a YouTube channel where we're like, yeah, we need to get content out regularly, we would have never done that. No. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Okay. So the Mr. Beast Squid Games project, I think was the, maybe the perfect combination of like how you would get maximum interest in a behind the scenes because most Mr. Beast videos, and I've talked to Jimmy about this, it's like people want to know how it was done. And kind of the most amazing part of the video is that it was real. It actually mm -hmm. happened. He really did say that word a million times to a camera. He really did run a marathon in the biggest shoes. Like that's actually what happened. And that's the amazing part of the video. And this latest one was like, all right, we all know what Squid Games is. We've seen it. There's these crazy challenges. And he's going to put real people through these challenges to find an overall winner at the end. And watching that video, to me, I'm in the mode that I sort of go in when I go to watch a Mr. Beast video, which is, all right, this is going to be real. Let's see how I pulled it off. And so slowly my mind starts to realize more and more, oh, th there's a little bit of VFX happening in this video. This is really interesting. Um, I'm curious. Multiple pe people here said, no, it's good. That's yeah. what it is. No, he it's got to be real. It. So, th I mean, if that should be a compliment <laughs> to y'all. Hayato was like, no, this is real. I yeah. was like, it's, I think yeah. it's close to real, but there's some... Some help you involved, know, yeah. It's interesting because it's such a like hidden, like it's interesting because like in a way, the better we do our jobs, exactly. the less people yeah, realize we're doing the job. Always the joke. It's yeah. like if we do our job well, you're not supposed to know we did our job. Yeah. Which is awesome and hurts yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, so, so it's, it's like you know. a it's like a great thing and a bad thing. It's like, oh, it's mm -hmm. awesome you didn't notice there's VFX. But also at the same time, it's like, hey, like, you know, we did <laughs> do a lot of work yeah. to make that it's shot. It's kind of like a like a really well done video game. You can tell when something runs really smoothly, it's mm -hmm. just great and immersive. And mm -hmm. when someone steps weird over a curb, it's like, yeah, what were they thinking? This is terrible and just broke immersion. Exactly. Like, oh, yeah. And yeah. going going back to the, the practicality of Mr. Beast, like I think it's the perfect marriage when he added these visual effects because everything that you saw was still done practically. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. was all still done. And like we can tell you that stuff, the stuff he does is real. Like yeah. it, it was done practically and it was it's like, incredible. And yeah. we are really just bringing in our style and being able to allow them to do stuff that is impossible. Yeah. You know, it's like an enhanced yes. version. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 I'm trying to imagine like you guys. Like, put yourselves in our shoes for a second when we're there. And we know, like, for VFX, it's really important to shoot things a certain way and do things a certain way. And, and mm -hmm. you know, think, like, the footage you get is, like, you know, that's that's our canvas that we paint on. You know, and if that canvas is perfectly white and clean and ready to go and it's, like, you know, we can, we can do whatever we want, that's fantastic. If the canvas gets muddied, that's a problem. So it's a little bit terrifying going into a production yeah. where they're literally, and this is completely true, there is no take two. Mm -hmm. Like, you go in and when the yeah. cameras roll and the game's played, you get what you get. So there's a little bit of that like, oh crap kind of feeling mm -hmm. of like when you're getting this all set up where we're like, oh man, like, you know, let's, let's, we, we have one chance to knock this out and do it right. And so we're really fortunate. Like the footage came out fantastic. Like, you know, I've, the final end product we're super yeah. proud of. So, but it was definitely a little bit, it was pretty scary getting up to that point. There was a moment, I think before the first game in your video where he comes up to you and is like, Hi, everything going to go well? Oh yeah. Oh, at yeah. least from your side. <laughs> okay, good. Good luck out there, man. Let's do it. Run, man. You already, you're already for this. And there was like a pause for a second. I was like, they're nervous. That's gotta <laughs> yeah. be terrifying to like go yeah. through all of this. Man. It, it, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting because, you know, we do so much preparation to like, you know, get everything right. But there's variables you can't control. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's just like when you're out there and you're filming, like, you know, the game is going to go on. All right. Next up is a chat with a fellow creator again. This one is Hank Green. How do you feel about 
Twitter as a platform. Twitter's Twitter's just sort of like all over the place at this point. I actually really yeah. like Twitter, it, and there's not that many yeah. pieces to review, but I use it more than I think any other social platform other than TikTok right now. Yeah, Twitter is such an interesting case because it is like far more influential than it is successful, especially in, you know by like market cap yeah. um, metrics like <laughs> Google and uh, and you know even TikTok and of course Facebook just dwarf the valuation of of Twitter. But Twitter is extraordinarily influential and important, and like the the people who use it are oftentimes. Um, defining culture and really in, in specific and uh, powerful places. Mm -hmm. um, it's big in journalist circles and then it's big in DC. And so uh, it's a, it's a huge deal. Uh, and, and I like, I like it as a platform and I hate it as a platform. I like it when I, when I can convince myself to use it the, in the ways that I enjoy it. And I hate it when I am subject to its whims and, and get drawn into things that I, you know, know aren't my lane. And I know, um, are just me being mad about something that I'm oversimplifying in my brain, which is something that all social media are good at. Um, and I like, I just feel like, you know, there's a beauty in Twitter's uh, long-term inability to innovate <laughs> yeah, um, because it just remains what it is. But there's also like a, just a huge, uh, you know, missed opportunity there. Like it, it, Twitter owned Vine. <laughs> And like yep. they had this extraordinarily interesting, powerful short form video platform. Do you know how many employees Vine had when it closed? That's a really good question. I could guess, I'm gonna guess Vine had a hundred employees. Had 50 employees. I had fewer employees than I do. Wow. That's insane. That is and incredible. Like, just just try to just invest in it, just figure it out. But like they can't, like they just can't, you know. I, Jack Dorsey obviously has always been very drawn in many directions and not interested at always in focusing on one thing. And I think that that was not all the love to Jack if you're listening. But I think it's not. It's a hard way to be a CEO, and I know that because I'm the same way. Um, and uh, I think that there were there are a lot of missed opportunities at Twitter. But at the same time, I kind of like that it's like chugging along, yeah. making zero dollars, um, having having not a lot of intrusive advertising and and not like launching shorts <laughs> like yep. the moment that that uh, becomes interesting like all the other platforms have yeah yeah no they kept it simple for sure i mean that's kind of how it started it's it started with just like 140 characters or 160 yeah. or whatever it was and text message platform just basically text, yeah exactly um yeah but i think maybe the most interesting platform of the hour is tiktok i mean it's yeah it's ever consuming what was the stat now? It just passed. It it passed something, right? It passed uh, one of the other largest sites in the world to be like one of the top five biggest sites. And I think yeah. by traffic, they're probably yeah. one of the biggest. Period. Um, mm -hmm. TikTok is fascinating to me. So we've got these top, these couple top creators that are household names. We've got the Demilios, Addison Rays. All of these at the mm -hmm. and everyone knows who these people are. They're basically broken into mainstream. And then you have the sort of upper tier of, of the biggest TikTok creators. And I, I pay attention to a lot of them because the, the For You page serves me videos from them all the time. And it seems mm -hmm. like they're all sort of itching to graduate from TikTok. And it's kind of fascinating yeah. to see. And a lot of them go to make a YouTube channel. A lot of them graduate from yeah. social media in general and they go on to do TV stuff. 
You talked about mm -hmm. this in your video, but I'm curious for your like quick take on like why are all the biggest TikTokers trying to just get out of TikTok, even though TikTok is massive and gaining momentum the way it is? I mean, so th there's two reasons. One is, you know, the, the story that you feel like you're a part of. And this was a thing when, when I was coming up on YouTube, every YouTuber wanted to be on TV. And so like they wanted to be a part of the story that their heroes were a part of rather than the story that they were inside of, which is hmm. just how we are. And that is a bad reason. Like, like in my experience, YouTubers who focused on YouTube did way better than YouTube, YouTubers who were like, how do I do TV now? Like, yep. There's not a lot of examples of YouTubers who made that transition well. Um, but uh, there are examples of certainly people who started on Vine and made the transition to YouTube really effectively and have become household names. Um, and I think that that is also a, definitely an option for, for TikTokers. And the, the other reason is a very good reason, which is that uh, you can, it's, it is more valuable to be a, a YouTuber than to be a TikToker. And that is both economically, like you make more money per minute of time people spend on your content, but also because you develop a deeper relationship with your audience because you have them for more than 15 seconds or a minute or three minutes at the outside. Yeah. And that uh, that is how you, um, that is how you like, you know, TikTok is very intentionally a, user first platform and and like to the extent that um it will sacrifice everything else for the user experience like ads are extremely easy to skip by mm -hmm. the content is um like it's like i know that you i know that deep in your heart you feel like you would want to give that creator who you like vibe with you feel like you want to give them more of your time but you don't really. You want to watch this guy hurt himself on a snowboard. Let's be honest with ourselves. And yeah. they're, they're maybe they're right. So so like they are giving you what you not what you would choose, but what you actually want. And that's wild. And so that's uh, that's why it's such a sticky platform. But it makes it a a more a harder place to build a business as a creator and to build an audience as a creator. So yeah. It's harder to develop a deeper relationship with people. Um, which is democratizing. It gives, it creates way more opportunity for people to constantly be breaking in and, and getting that first exposure to audience and to uh, attention. But it is because of that, you know, opportunity for breakthrough, you're, there's always somebody ready to take your place. Uh, and so you have to figure out how to convert those people into something except for just a TikTok audience. And, you know, YouTube is the best place for that. Yeah. Um, and with YouTube launching and and being successful about shorts, it does seem a little bit like maybe there's it, it's amazing to think that, that this is the way I'm thinking now, but maybe there is a threat to to TikTok in YouTube's short strategy. Interesting. Um, whereas, you know, a year ago, I, I would have been thinking like, you know, is TikTok a threat to YouTube? Now I'm like, I mean, abs of course, it's a huge threat to YouTube. It, it is yeah. the it is the first threat to YouTube, really. It, like Facebook couldn't take them on, but TikTok can. And the, you know, that uh, now I'm thinking like, how, do, how does YouTube take market share away from TikTok? Because yeah. YouTube is much better at making money. Um, I was uh, just about like to say the, the platform. I have yeah. a, a stat just recently that YouTube had a larger quarter four of last year than Netflix in revenue. I think yeah. it was like eight and a half billion dollars of revenue. YouTube is making a lot of money. Now it costs a lot of money to run, but they're making a lot of money. Yep. 
Um, and also one of the points you brought up earlier that I th I've thought about a lot is like the, the intrinsic value of an audience on one platform versus the other. Like, would you rather have 10 million views on a TikTok or 1 million yeah. views on a YouTube video? And it's kind of still waited for the YouTube video at that point. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So that's always been really interesting. And you look at the numbers, actually the, the, the biggest piece of content I have ever created by views is a TikTok. Of course it is. Uh, and it's like 33 million views on a seven second video or something uh -huh. crazy like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you're, if you find yourself, like if you come up as a TikToker, you've built your, your brand, but not your business necessarily. You do as a smart person want to build a business around it on something more stable, um, like a mm -hmm. YouTube channel. So it, it does make a lot yep. of sense to what we see it being built. Are you, you make yeah. TikToks. Do you, do you consider yourself a TikToker at this point? You've made enough of them. You have like a presence there. At this point, I it, it it would be almost embarrassing to not call myself a TikToker. Like yeah. it'd be like I'm trying to pretend I'm not a TikToker. Yeah. Um, and the other reason I kind of consider myself a TikToker is because I really admire a lot of the people I follow on TikTok, and and we have, you know, in the same way as uh, my colleagues on YouTube, you know, talked a bit on on direct messages and stuff. And I just think that they're so cool and interesting and smart in the way that they are approaching their their content and their audience that like i feel like if i if i the, the only reason i don't have to call myself a tiktoker would be like that i don't think it's a, it's a uh that i would that i'm embarrassed by it and when i think about those people i'm like i'd be I'm, i'd be like almost um uh deriding their creativity and thoughtful content if i pretend like i'm not one of yeah. them I mean, it used to be embarrassing to say you're a YouTuber, and now yeah. it's it's got a different connotation every other every month. Yeah. But now it's yeah. like, oh, nice! Like I understand what that yeah. is, uh, <laughs> which is that's like kind of funny because I've said to people I don't know that I'm, like an Uber driver, if you just say you're a YouTuber, they're like, oh yeah, yeah I know, I know some of those. Like they, they understand it already. All right, next up, I actually got to talk with the inventor of Wordle. I still play Wordle every morning to this day. I'm, I know not a lot of you guys are still on that grind, but I am, and I also got to chat with Josh Warrell himself. Uh, I went to powerlanguage.co.uk and I played the world game that I have played so often. Uh, I've never gotten it in two before, so I was really excited because on my first guess, I got three greens. And I really nice. thought this was it. I thought it was finally happening. I was gonna get three greens on the second, I was gonna get all of them green on the second one. Uh, my second guess was wrong though. And then my third guess was wrong. And then my fourth guess was wrong. And so I got it in five out of six. And I was kind of mad, but I also felt I posted it on the internet and I felt sort of united with the rest of the world in our collective frustration. <laughs> so um, today we have the man responsible for that united collective frustration, Josh Wardle. Thanks for joining us on Waveform today. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. So I guess, first of all, your your name is very close to the Wordle game. It's, very, it's one letter off, basically. But... Well done. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Please, uh, please break down the the background of of I guess how you how you created it, why you created Wordle, the sort of origin story. I'm sure you've probably told it a million times. Yeah, yeah. So on the name front, yeah, it's a play on my name. It's a word game. It was one of those things. I'm sure you've had this with a project where you start it and you just give it a dumb. It needs a name. You give it a dumb name and you're like, "This is a dumb name. I'll change it in the future." And then obviously, like a bunch of things about this project. The domain, for instance, powerlanguage.co.uk forward slash Wordle, probably not where you want to launch a viral game, uh, given that no one can remember any of that and they have to Google it. Yep. Uh, 
But yeah, so uh, I actually, this was a game that I made for my uh, partner. She and I really enjoy playing word games, uh, especially some of the ones that the New York Times offers. So they have daily crosswords, a game called Spelling Bee, that's kind of, uh, you play once a day and it's a word game. So my goal was to make a game for her that she would enjoy playing and Wordle was it. Like I had made a prototype of it a long time ago, um, back in 2013. And it, it it was similar, but had some key differences. And I basically just put it away. I shared it with a few friends. People were like, yeah, not really. And then uh, at the beginning of 2021, we were playing a lot of games. I got a bit more confident as a developer. And I was like, I think that there was that idea had some legs. So I dusted it off and I made it. And it was literally just the two of us playing it for six months. And then I introduced it to some friends and family in the UK. And then kind of November it just started, uh, it got picked up by a few like tech bloggers and then it, it really, really took mm. off uh, beginning of December. And then, yeah, it's been a been a roller, co- roller coaster. So it's, it started really just with a couple people you shared it with. And did it always have that uh, that share metric at the end? Because as soon as I saw those uh, those bars, I knew that was going to accelerate it. But at one point, did yeah. that get added? Yeah, so that was added sometime in late November, I think. So what happened, a tech blogger, Andy Bio, he runs uh, waxy.org, where he kind of collects interesting things online. He had tweeted about it and posted a a blog post about it, and it got picked up in a New York Times newsletter. And then as a result of that, for reasons that I don't understand, it got really popular in New Zealand. And I've heard about New Zealand that it has a very interconnected Twitterverse, right? Doesn't Not many people live in New Uh. Zealand comparatively to somewhere like the US. So people tend to be very connected and at this point that share grid the emoji share grid that you're talking about didn't exist so people would just say i got the wordle in three you know and uh, a player over there who i don't know a woman named elizabeth s she started typing out her results as that emoji grid and then i saw other people copying it so people literally opening their emoji keyboard and then going back and forth between the two and typing it out so i was like i can integrate that into the you know into the game really easily and then that obviously has had a huge uh, impact because it gives you this artifact that's, even though I did a bunch of things and I did this throughout Wordle, I did a bunch of things that are the opposite of what you're meant to do if you're trying to make something go viral or grow. Like there's no link back to the game, for instance, in the in the share grid. It did give you this artifact and invited you to share. And that's obviously done wonders for it in terms of it uh, catching on and spreading around. Yeah, that is definitely how I found it. I think there was a couple people who shared their grids in my timeline. And by the way, a funny story is I still know some people who typed out the emoji grid (laughs) manually for some reason, which is hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, that's how I found it. It was funny, though. You mentioned, you know, you did a couple things in the game that were not necessarily designed to help accelerate its growth. It was just like, it's almost this like pure, simple thing that you sort of, stumble across on the internet, kind of like the old days almost a little bit. Um, were there things you thought about? Like it starts growing and then you've you've had other experiments like this in the past I want to talk about, but did you think of other things you could do with Wordle to maybe change it up or was there sort of a beauty to keeping it simple? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think because I had started it simple and I had a really clear idea of what I was doing with it, it made it really easy to say no to any of those compulsions as they came up because, yeah. you know, whereas if my goal had been to make a viral game from the outset, I think I would have been, you know, capitalizing on this in like a bunch of different ways and like oh, yeah. maybe, but but it felt like 
I don't know, with all the projects that I've done that have been successful, I've found part of it is not, it's just kind of doing the thing that feels authentic to me. And if people happen to like that, then great. If they don't, not. And so then allowing Wordle's success to like make me change it, which obviously I was willing to do, right? I did add the share grid, which was mm -hmm. something that wasn't wasn't there originally. So there is a, a boundary there, but it, it I don't know. If, if I start, I have to think about what are my motivations when I'm doing this thing and are they aligned with, it gets really hard when you're doing things for the wrong reasons, basically. So I found yeah. it simpler to keep it uh, the same. Are there any features you would like to see? Uh, is, this, uh, is this a feature request coming? Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I like that it's simple. I think as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, well, I can't believe there's only one word a day. I just want to keep playing. But like, or well, maybe they'd add five, six letter words, seven letter words. Maybe they'd do a bunch of other stuff. But I like that it was simple. It was just a clean one single purpose for it the entire time. And I actually want I wanted to talk to you because I feel like as a creator, I, I feel like I relate a lot to you because one of the things I've said for a long time is one of the best things that never happened to me was having a, a video of mine just spike and just go super viral and then feel like I have to chase that carrot or, and like evolve and become sort of defined by that viral success. Um, how do you feel about, like you've had other projects. I want to talk about uh, the place and the button and what those are. Um, mm -hmm. How do you think about like the success of those projects and not letting it define you? Yeah, I mean, this is incredibly hard and uh, it kind of does define me in a way that I don't actually feel comfortable with. Uh, like, I feel good when a project I make does well. I feel bad when a project I make doesn't do well. And that is not healthy, I think. And I, I think to a certain degree, it's unavoidable as a creator putting stuff yeah. out and sharing it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think it's like, it's led to some quite unpleasant places for me personally and uh and then again in terms of when we're talking about what is your motivation it kind of gets confusing if you're making things to be a success but that wasn't the motivation when you made the original things that were successful like how does all that get it all gets a bit uh all gets a bit murky and so yeah i had these projects at reddit that are kind of more i would call like social experiments than games um, and they, uh, Silicon Valley tends to do these really dumb April Fool's Day things where they like make a prank and it's super lame and everyone <laughs> looks at it. And I read it. I was like, what if we do something different? Like we use this day where we can do, we're kind of locked into the things we can do with our users. What if we use this one day a year where you can kind of do anything online that people are really kind of wasting in my opinion. And we do something, just try something completely different. And so that is where kind of the Reddit approach now of like, often doing a social experiment that explores the way that humans interact at large scales online yeah. um, kind of kind of came from uh, and, and, and just like a general disappointment with the lack of imagination in the, in the tech world. I think we're on <laughs> the same page about tech world April Fool's, yeah. <laughs> I, the button was really interesting. I, I kind of vaguely remember it because it was so long ago, but you, so you were working at Reddit and you had the opportunity to try something cool, something fun, like a, a social experiment on, and that was a great day to do it. What was the button? Just break down what exactly that was. Yeah, so the button's super simple. It is uh, as a subreddit. So Reddit is organized into communities called subreddits of uh, people who share similar interests. There was a subreddit called the button. And at the top of the button, there was a button and a timer. The timer counts down from 60 seconds. If you press the button, the timer resets back up to 60 and starts counting down. Uh, the key thing is that you can only ever press the button once. You have to be logged in, and once you press the button, you can never place, press it again. 
So then the question becomes, how long will the collective internet decide to keep pressing this button, right? Like if it reaches zero, it stops and it will never run again. And so you have a 60 second window in which to press the button. And it turns out the answer is two months. Uh, so over two months, every 60 seconds, someone somewhere chose to press the button, which ended up being over a million people. And there was a bunch of stuff there like the time that you pressed, we gave you on Reddit, we called it Flare. It's like a little tag that appears next to your username oh, in yeah. the community. And so if you pressed it early, you got a different color next to your name than if you pressed it later. And then so all these social hierarchies started forming. You know, people who pressed it early were seen as impulsive and they couldn't wait. Whereas if you held it, if you waited for two months, you could press it when there were only two seconds left on the button. You get red flare and then people wow. will be like, whoa. But uh, so there are all these weird social dynamics emerged from this like really, really simple uh, idea. And, and, and that's one thing that I found works really well for me. It's kind of, we were talking about earlier, like, have you, been, you know, all the what ifs, like, what if you change this? What if you change this? And I think what I found worked for me with the projects at Reddit and to an extent Wordle is like trying to make things as simple as possible. It's so easy to say with a creative project, what if we do this? What if we do this? Because no one knows the answer, right? And mm -hmm. instead, I found it easier to be like, well, how much can we remove and still leave the core idea here and still make it an enjoyable experience? All right, next up is also a fellow YouTube creator, Tom Scott. I mean, he's got a bunch of different channels about a bunch of different things. Kind of hard to define, actually, what he does. And we talked about that a bit, but this is me chatting with Tom Scott. Um, I'll, tell, I'll tell you a video that I, yeah. I want to do but can't. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to throw this out because because by throwing this out here, I will finally get the video out of my <laughs> head and I don't have to I don't have to pour over this on my ideas board. Right. I've got it out. Someone out there can have it. Mm -hmm. Which is on content for kids on YouTube not really being... Uh, so we're not talking about like the, the stuff from years ago with like algorithmically generated Elsa and Spider-Man videos. Mm. And we're not talking about stuff that is for younger kids. We're talking about stuff that's for, so the ages, maybe nine to 13, that kind of age. Mm -hmm. um, if you ever looked at YouTube trending, that'll show up there quite a lot. And what, so there's a couple of reasons I don't want to do this. First, it, it would involve actively calling specific creators out. I could not tell the story without naming people. And I don't want to do that. I don't think that's a fair thing to do. Certainly, if, you, if you're ever going to do that, then the thing to do is do right of reply. You reach out to them. You get their response to it. Like, there's a whole ethical thing that you're required to do that apparently is mostly ignored on YouTube. But, like, basic ethics, you reach out, yeah. you get the response. I don't do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to name this is the problem. But in, for the examples I know, I would have to specifically go, yeah. this is the problem. Fine doing that for television. On the, uh, I did a video about advertising disclosures. And I'm okay to call I out a, that video. I'm okay to call out a television show yeah. because that is run by a corporation with 100 employees. I'm not, I'm not saying you there, you have made the mistake. Mm -hmm. Most YouTube operations, I would be, be pointing at a person and I don't want to it do It also that. feels like punching up instead of punching down. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So... Anyway, setting, setting that aside, yeah. I would have to make specific examples. Maybe I could, maybe I could like get someone to animate. But you're still talking about people. Mm -hmm. And secondly, I don't want to deal with the backlash from that audience. You know, I don't want kids angrily. I, I don't want internet kids <laughs> defending their heroes to come at me because yeah. you're not going to be able to reason with. You're not going to be able to reason with any internet crowd. But it's just, 
I don't want that hassle. So this is this is what this came from, is comparing two videos and what was judged age-restricted and safe. So again, the title would be something like How Safe is YouTube for Children or something like that. Again, so your first comparison is to uh, the TV I grew up with and to all the regulations that broadcast television has to have for protection of kids. And the one that, that is in my head, aside from all the stuff about sex and violence, the obvious ones, there is one about... Uh, imitable behavior i might be using the right i might be using the wrong word there Im mm. behavior that could be imitated mm -hmm. yeah so the two videos i really want to compare neither of which like i endorse as a thing just to be clear um there was a british youtuber or team about three years ago i think now who were doing big uh, just hurting themselves for views which like it's jackass it's a genre right i have no problem with that like i grew up in there yeah like, yeah um he like the the title was cementing my head inside a microwave. Jesus! Now oh it's not actually cement. It's um, I think the US term is like spackle. It's the stuff you put on yeah, walls yeah. that hardens, mm -hmm. like to like yeah. fix drywall patches and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, and like I'm not going to call these guys out because the, the first 15 seconds of that video is some of the best editing I've ever seen <laughs> for a coming up. It's it's brilliantly done. Yeah, but obviously age restricted backlash, like no adverts on it. Absolutely. Like, YouTube still has that up, I think. But obviously, like, that was a news story because the fire brigade had to come and save his life because it went wrong. Yeah. Like, yeah. It was, it was a news story, public apology kind of thing. Like, no ads and anything like that. And that was in my head because I saw something on Trending a few months ago, which was, and again, I have to call out a specific video here. There's, there's no... I, I don't want to imply that this is a deliberate thing. This is... I would read it as folks who have no one in the loop who is saying this is maybe not something we should do. Uh -huh. So I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to criticize overly. I'm criticizing the idea which was uh last to escape concrete wins. Yeah. And you've got three guys doing all the 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 hyperactive cuts that has become common for YouTube yeah, young, pretending to be in setting concrete. And it's clearly not because like that's yeah. a like it, a alkali burns like yeah. uh, physical burns because it's it's an exothermic reaction that is obviously not real but they're playing it as real and that's the sort of thing that would be completely utterly blocked from broadcast at least in in any European country I don't know how the First Amendment affects that in the US but certainly for for kids yeah um that. Like, growing up, we had... Uh, the US term is public service announcements. We'd call them public information films okay. about not playing on construction sites or with construction equipment. The idea that a show for kids, teenagers, anything like that would encourage something like that is just... No, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> you don't... You don't even... If there's a million kids watching that and one of them now thinks that it's safe to play in concrete then not only is that, that a bad thing, obviously, because the kid's going to get hurt, but also that's a, a lawsuit in enormous liability for them, just from a, a self, from a purely selfish perspective for them, ignoring the welfare of kids. Uh -huh. That's a lawsuit waiting to happen. Hmm. But YouTube will happily serve up adverts on that. That's suitable for everyone. That's suitable for all ages. Hmm. And rather than the, the overt worry that this is clearly bad for kids, there is this subtle thing of... This is this, so that is sorry that was a long diversion, um, but there is a lot of stuff out there that is not obviously 
unsafe for children. But with a moment's thought that the algorithm doesn't have and that human reviewers generally don't have time to have, they'll be off the, all right, is this, an, is this obviously a stunt? Is this a, uh, it's someone messing about in some grey slime. Okay, right, we're fine. There is a lot of stuff that could cause imitable behaviour. I would love to make that video. Like I can see, like the copyright yeah. video, like the advertising video, I, I have the structure of that in my head. It's 30 to 40 minutes long. It's got a few jokes in there. And a really nice conclusion. And nope. I'm yeah. not going to call out specific people, despite the fact I just kind of did. But you know what I mean by that. I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to put someone's face in the thumbnail. Right. Um, and I don't want to have to deal with a load of kids defending that crowd. All right, time for one more quick ad break. We'll take that and we'll be right back. All right, next up we got everybody's favorite engineering educator, uh, also fellow creator on YouTube, uh, Mark Rober. Kind of feels like he's doing in engineering what we had the Bill Nyes and Neil deGrasse Tysons of the world do for astrophysics. Just, just a lot of people following along. His videos are always incredible. So anyway, this is my chat with Mark Rober. When I think about like engineering and science in school, I, I wonder like you you basically are an educator now and more more so than ever because we'll talk about Crunch Labs in a second. But are there things that you like wish were different about your education maybe how you maybe there's different types of learnings that would have helped you more or do you find that you know the normal school path got you to know you enjoy math and engineering because i when i see crunch labs i'm like oh learning at home physical learnings like visual learnings things in your own hands that's what i would have wanted that's way more Mm -hmm. down my alley but i wonder how you look at it yeah for sure like i think to the degree that you can learn without realize you're learning, like realizing you're learning is like, that's, I mean, if I think about all the things I'm the most passionate about and I'm like the best at, like, I mean, take, I still edit all my own videos. Right. And it's like, I, I feel like I'm pretty good at editing and writing and coming up with like a good story uh, and like a way to communicate something at this point because I'm passionate about it and I love it. And it's like, I never, I never took a class for that. Right. Like no one's ever like officially taught me. It's just something I'm so passionate about and I enjoy. And therefore I know it better than I know almost anything else. And to the degree that you can just tap into that and, and just tickle that part of someone. Like I, like my favorite thing in life is that like aha moment where it's like, you a, a, a new principle becomes, or you see something in a different way. Like I'm addicted to that feeling. I love like reading books that challenge the way I think and get me to like, just, just, just like learning like that, that excitement of learning something new is like such an addictive feeling. And I love giving that aha moment to like other people. Like I know when I'm, I'm going to drop a juicy nugget in a video, that's like, ah, I'm going to say this. And a lot of people don't realize this is true. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so if you can make learning about that feeling and just like the excitement, I did a Ted talk about a TEDx talk about what I call the super Mario effect, which is basically like, you know, when, when you're playing a video game, you're not afraid of failure. If you fall into a pit on level one of, of, of Mario, you're not like, you don't throw the, the controller down and be like, Oh, that's so embarrassing. I can't believe I died. Like I never want to play this game again. You're like, no, like, okay, there's a pit there. Okay, next time I got to remember, I got to kind of met with more speed. I'm going to try jumping a little earlier. 
might take six or seven tries before you land that, right? Level eight one, that little, you had to make that big jump and there's that tiny little block you had to land on and then do a quick jump. Like, got me every time, right? Uh, But I was, that meant I wanted to figure it out that much more. And like, as as kids, as a result, we got really good at that game really fast. And we never went to school the next day and we're like, you know, talked about all the different ways we died. The question was like, did you beat the game last night? And it's like, you know, I said in the talk, like the most meaningful high fives of my adolescence was when it's like, yeah, dude, I beat it. I beat it. And so it's like, I try and approach in my own life, like challenges that way. And so as a result, you're just way less focused on the failure and and being embarrassed and, and, and looking dumb. And if you gamify the object of the thing you're trying to learn and you will just learn it so much faster and it's a totally pleasant experience and you love it just like we love playing video games. And so that's a long way to answer your question. Like, heck yeah. Like the more you can make learning exciting and something that the kid, the, the students see the passion in the teacher, uh, because they're genuinely passionate about it. Like that's the secret sauce. And I had a couple teachers like that. So what did you work on at Apple? <laughs> can you, is, that a, uh, is that a question I can ask? It's definitely a question you could ask. And like, they are very clear when you leave of like the large stack of things you signed that says you're not going to tell about this, talk about this. Here's what I can say. I did product design in their special projects group. And uh, there was like a leak. So it's kind of a funny story. I don't know that I've ever told this publicly, but... Um, they, um, first of all, they approached me and wanted me to work for them. And then they told me when I came there, I can't make YouTube videos. And I'm like, for, and granted at that time I had like 250,000 subs. So I was pretty small, but I'm like, forget you guys. Like you came to me. Like I didn't like, then I'm not going to work with you. And I don't feel like you can even tell me I can't make videos anyways. Like, is that even legal? So eventually they backed off in that and they just said, fine, but wait at least three months till you make a video so you kind of get the culture here and you can't say in your videos you work for Apple. I'm like, fine. I'm like, I don't even have, like part of me convincing them was like, I don't even have that big of a channel anyways. It's not going to get that many views. So I come there and the very first video I upload after three months is how to skin a watermelon, which to this day is my most popular video ever with like 140 million views. It just had a really banger thumbnail at a time when thumbnails were like, really important to the algorithm it was just like weird timing so i'm like guys don't worry i don't need that many views anyways i upload this and in like a week it has like 25 million views it just like totally popped um yeah so anyways so i'm making videos and then eventually maybe a year later um jimmy kimmel asked me you know his folks are like hey do you want to come on the kimmel show and i was like well so i asked I asked Apple that and it gets bumped all the way up to Dan Riccio, who is like one below Tim Cook. And Dan Riccio's response was like, we should be focused on making great products. And so that comes down. So he didn't exactly (laughs) say no, but it was like, and I, and then I honestly realized from that, like, Oh, they can't actually tell me. No, if I'm not saying I work for Apple, like if I want to canoe after hours, you know, they can't tell me like, I can't canoe because we should be focused on making great products. So I did Kimmel anyways. And that turned out to be, you know, a really good career decisions because him and I are like good friends. Now I'm staying at his house next. I'm hosting his show next week. 
and staying at his house and wow. going on vacation with him, uh, you know, the month after that. Um, so it's like, I'm glad I didn't listen to Dan Riccio there. That's for Nate. <laughs> so I yeah, kind of kept it secret, you know, that I worked for Apple and then my channel got bigger and bigger. And their concern, like to their point is like, there's nothing beneficial that there's no upside to them by having me be an Apple employee and having a large following. It's only downside. Cause if I now have a platform to talk about them, like they don't need me to get their story out. Right. So eventually there was, I get a call one day after working for Apple for four years and it's a reporter from variety, I think, or something. And it's like, can you comment on your work you do for Apple? And I'm like, uh, what are you talking about? And as I'm talking to him, I get a call from Apple HR, like pinging in on this. And, uh, so I go over and they're like, Hey, look, someone's going to leak this story that you work for us. Just be, you know, don't say anything, you know, just keep it very surface level. So anyways, I did, it ended up being this big story that leaked and all my coworkers like gave me a hard time about it or teasing me, but after that, it was like not a big deal, and I still worked for them right. for like another year. And we, they loved me working for them, and I loved working for them. The reason it leaked, though, getting to the everything, and this is the answer to your question: What did I do at Apple? Uh, I was lead author on a patent, and I could say this because it's like public domain about um, using virtual reality and self-driving cars, and like what are all the implications of that? You know, and the main one being again, because this is listed in the patent, like 40% of people suffer from motion sickness. And wouldn't it be interesting if you could use virtual reality to solve that? Because motion sickness is when like, basically your, your internal gyro doesn't match up with what your eye is seeing. So that's why if you're like in the backseat, you can't see forward, you get motion sickness, you don't know what's happening. And so if you could really know exactly what the car is going to do and where it's going to turn and how it's turning, and show that to you in virtual reality, uh, then you could potentially not get motion sickness. Because well, when autonomous cars eventually come, we'll have all this free time, but if you get motion sick, you, you get, there's nothing you can do with it. So yeah. the idea that you could strap on a virtual reality, and, and, and by the way, imagine virtual reality is like sunglasses, not these big bulky things now, but it's like very lightweight thing you put on your head in the future. Um, and then, and now you can work on your laptop because essentially the screen is like way over on the horizon, you know, it would show you a fake horizon and the screen would be like Ah. in the sky basically. And so if, you know, no one gets motion sickness looking way over at the horizon. So now all of a sudden you can look down and see a virtual keyboard and you're typing or you could watch a movie. Um, But then there's also tons of other implications that are listed in the patent of like, what does that mean for um, entertainment? Because like a car in some ways is the best version of a motion simulator because, you know, if you go on Star Tours or motion simulator, they have to simulate gravity by tilting your seat back. And then your brain's like, "Eh, I'm not feeling like pressure on my butt as much. So something just feels off when you're supposedly, quote unquote, accelerating. But in a car, you you still keep your G's pointing down and you actually can accelerate and brake and turn and impart these G's to you in a way that could be pretty entertaining or relaxing or engaging depending on what or kind of thrilling. version you feed into the V or thrilling into the <laughs> VR. So, um, yeah, there's a lot there. And I will say again, because this is public record, Apple has continued to make updates to that patent and it's 
it feels like, from my perspective, they're, it's an interesting one for them. So, I don't know. It was really exciting to be – and that came about because Apple's like – one of my managers at Apple was like, hey, dude, you're coming up with all these banger ideas on YouTube. Like, come up with a banger idea for us. And so I started, like, thinking about it. And then, like, I was in a meeting and I was just like – I started shaking because I'm like, oh, my gosh, this would be so crazy. And so then, like, I started coming up with all these versions of it. And to their credit, management is very supportive there when you have ideas. They let they – let, you run with stuff and they have the funds to invest in it. So they were very supportive of letting me just go crazy with this idea. And um, yeah, it's, it's a really fun, cool experience to be able to do that. Cause it's like, you yes. know, there's one idea of, there's one thing of like, you know, we come up with ideas on our own, which is cool. You own the full idea and you can really, you could technically own it and run it cradled great. But it's like working at the largest tech company in the world you know, the most valuable company in the world with like so many resources. If you come up with an idea there, it's like you're going to really affect the world in, you know, what would be, you know, hopefully a very positive way. So that was kind of an exciting thing about working with Apple. It's just like, if you do have an idea, like the leverage that could come from that idea is so much more than if you just had it on your own. Yeah. That sounds like the most fascinating like conundrum of like being in a meeting like, oh, I have an idea, but is this better for Apple or for a video later? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> which one, which do I do? Uh, I didn't give no, them the glitter bomb. I kept the glitter bomb to myself. Good so call. I didn't give them all Good the call. <laughs> that would be bad. I cannot imagine. I, I ask for Apple all the time to get into various things. Like, yeah, you, should, you guys should make a camera. That would be sick. There's, you guys should make a printer. Printers suck right now. I don't know. Glitter bomb. Yeah, that's a YouTube video for sure. I don't, like, I don't like the idea of that being real. Okay, next up is a chat with a fellow YouTuber, a tech creator again this time. Uh, we do have a lot in common, but a very different approach to a lot of things. And it was fun talking about it. A chat with Zach from Jerrig Everything. What's the story behind the name? I think you probably have the this sort of like people don't know if your name is Jerry or not happening. Um, yeah. I wonder where Jerry Rig Everything came from. It it makes intuitive sense to me, but maybe you have like a story behind coming up with it. Yeah. So most of the time, like when someone recognized me on the street, you know, at a restaurant or at the store or something like that, they'll be like, "Hey, you're the you're Jerry, right?" And I'll just just kind of roll with it. Um, but my name is actually Zach. Yeah. Um, the Jerry Rig Everything came from. Um, I was when I originally started YouTube. My channel name was Green Do Ocean because I really liked Mountain Dew at the time. Nice. But I realized as I had, you know, a couple thousand subscribers that, you know, YouTube could actually be like a viable job. And like, I would have to come up with a light, a slightly more memorable and reputable name, I guess. Um, and so I was laying in bed when I had like 2am when most of my good ideas come. And I realized that, um, you know, my channel and kind of like the theme of what I do is, you know, jerry rigging stuff. And Jerry Rig is also the name of my grandpa, who is kind of like one of the people I really look up to. Um, you know, when he first got married, he lived in the back of a gas station. And then when he died, he, you know, was a very, very successful businessman, had a bunch of houses. And it was just a really cool, he's someone I look up to a lot. And so Jerry Rig is both a combination of the phrase Jerry Rig, as well as kind of like a way to remember uh, my grandpa, Jerry. That is pretty cool. I, I know now 
I think I, when I first was watching your videos, I was like, oh yeah, Jerry, I definitely thought that that was your name. So I'm glad that that's much more clear. Well, is that your current account though? You had that name for your current account that you changed to Jerry everything? So back then, so I think I've been doing YouTube for like nine or 10 years. Back then you couldn't change your name. You had to just delete your account, start over. And so you'll notice if you go back to my first videos, there's like 40 of them that are kind of all uploaded on the same day or the same week. And that's because I deleted my old account and uploaded mm -hmm. all the videos to a new account with the correct name. Now YouTube is way more, you know, you can change your name whenever you want. Wow. So, so you had like a moment where you were like, oh, I'm going to be doing this YouTube thing to a degree where I want to be proud of the name of it. I think I should make that conscious decision. When in your life cycle of a YouTuber was that exactly? It was so like when I first started uploading videos, I kind of just wanted to do it um, just kind of like a video journal of all my different projects. You know, I used YouTube um, for a lot of things and I just kind of want to like contribute back to that um, that platform. Um, and one of the ways I was using it is I was my Jeep at the time broke down. And so I got on YouTube and I found someone with the exact same problem I had. And instead of taking it to a shop to fix it for a thousand bucks, this guy could fix it for 80 by himself. And so I messaged him and I was like, you know, your video was so helpful to me and saved me so much money. Like, why do you do this? And he said, it's because, um, I want to decrease world suck, help people out. And at the same time, you know, YouTube pays me a little bit of money. And so that was kind of like what got me going on the platform. And I kind of, you know, I filmed my, my automotive projects, motorcycle projects. And then I realized it was a conscious decision that if I wanted to grow my audience past, you know, the small circle of people interested in automotive repairs, I would have to expand the type of content I made into phone teardowns and then durability tests and then into EVs and then building my own EV and then accessibility and just kind of grow it out from there. Each kind of chapter of my channel is a conscious growth decision, I guess. Yeah. I feel like a, a lot of the same, a lot of the same stuff I've done where like you have a core topic that you start off with, but you, you have more interests and you're able to sort of loop them in because they work with the, the theme and you're good at it, obviously. Like I, I watch you tear apart a, a part of phone sometimes and I just, sort of like mesmerized a little bit at like, oh, that's kind of awesome that you just sort of know right off the top of your head. Also, do you know right off the top of your head? Like you open a phone, you you know where all the ribbon cables are supposed to be when you put it back together. You, you've you done this many times. Does it ever go wrong? Like how long did it take you to get good at taking apart phones? I would say most phones that I take apart, I have one or two screws left over afterwards. Nice. So I would not say I'm like <laughs> okay. the most professional putting them back together again. Although, um, when does this podcast go up? Uh, in relation let's call to it a week and a half, week and a half. Okay, cool. So by the time this podcast goes up, I will have already, um, done the fold four teardown. Oh, the flip four teardown. Yeah. And I actually took that completely apart screen off and everything and put it back together. So I, I'm very impressed with yeah. the build quality of that. I am also, I mean, that seems like probably one of the harder ones to take apart and put back together. I haven't actually taken apart. Yeah. Well, okay, this is the question I was gonna ask you. This is something that's been on my mind for a while. When you, when I get a review unit of a phone, 
there's a very specific set of things that you're allowed to do with it and not allowed to do with it. And at the top of the list, every time is like, you can't take it apart. You can't durability <laughs> test it. You can't break it. You can't do any of the stuff that Zach does to the phone. So don't even think about it. Yeah. So I see all that. I'm like, all right, Zach. So you, you spend the extra time. You probably buy it from the manufacturer. You do what you got to do. But is there a difference in the way you work with some manufacturers? Are there some that are cool with sending you something knowing that you're going to take it apart? Yeah, I mean, I've always been super, super upfront. Like there's been several times where a company has reached out to me and been like, hey, um, you know, can we send you a review unit? And I'm like, do you know who I am and what I do to phones? And then they're like, oh, yeah, never mind. We're all out of review units. <laughs> Dang. And so that's happened several times. Wow. Um, but I mean, there has been companies that have been okay with it. Like, you know, nothing sent me their phone knowing what I was going to do to it. OnePlus sent me their phone knowing what I was going to do to it. Um, and, you know, that's super, and like, I've been straight up front, like, you know, there's no special favors or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, even though I get the phone and, you know, that has kind of come back to buy it OnePlus a little bit. But No, those are, I was going to say, those are literally the two companies I would have thought of, of who would be cool yeah. with getting you a device, knowing what might happen but being fine with it um okay have you been have you been surprised by any durability test results i mean you squeeze an ipad it breaks in half that's kind of nuts i'm imagining your your face off camera is a little bit wide-eyed when that happens but have you been impressed by something passing or super shocked by a by a failure um i would say the one that comes to mind first of all is just the folding phones like i seriously thought that they would be able to be snapped in half you know, every single time I grab one, I'm like, yeah, this can definitely break, but then it doesn't. Yeah. And so that's just nuts to me. Yeah. Bending it backwards seems like it should just snap right in half, but they do survive right? with impressive, with impressive consistency. That's pretty sick. All right. Next up is a segment that I did when Austin Evans, a good friend of mine, fellow YouTube creator and tech head visited the studio. I would say take it away, but it was recorded already. So here's me and Austin. All right, welcome back to Waveform for a new segment that we call Identify the Phone Behind Your Back and then Try to Remember Everything You Remember About It. With, uh, flows right off the tongue. Yeah, yeah with, your, with your hosts. I'm Marquez. I'm Andrew. Andrew's here. I'm Austin. Hello. Austin, our friend Austin is here. And that's going to make it more fun because Austin and I don't know the phones that are in this box that Andrew has. Andrew's going to give us the phones one by one. We're going to try to try to identify it behind our back and I'll pass it to you and then you can ID it and we can sort of uh, take it from there. See if we can ID the phones and remember stuff about them. So we did this back in 2015 for Team Crispy Live on stage. Low key, great format. It was a lot of fun. Great format. We've also tried it in like, you remember IGTV? Yeah. When IGTV was a thing where like, we should, we should shoot some stuff with phones in vertical and it was like a little segment we would do and we would just hand people phones and it's actually really fun. I feel like it's probably gotten harder now, though, right? I feel like a lot of phones are a little bit more similar in sort of build. Like, I feel like back in the day, there's a oh. little bit more flexibility. Like, oh, that's an HTC or it's a, it's a Samsung S4 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. There were metal phones. There were plastic phones. There were glass phones. Uh, Andrew, I have an idea. Mm -hmm. You hold the phone up to the cameras while our eyes are closed first so okay. the audience knows. And then when you're ready, put it in my hands and then we'll open our eyes. Okay. Okay. So Sounds good. Eyes closed? Yep, you right. you have full control over everyone. Watching. I'm okay. I'm closing my eyes. We'll probably have a caption on the screen to ID the phone, and then we'll attempt it. My hands are open behind me. 
Now, this will be fun for audio listeners. Yeah. Okay. This will be fun. I'm going to give it to you. Are you guys just keeping your eyes closed like the whole time? No, I'm going to open my eyes, but I'm going to not look at it. Okay, okay. it's okay. in my hands has now. the phone now. Okay, my eyes talk, are closed. Talk my, it hand, out. my hand is out. Oh, I'm going to I'm gonna try it first. Oh, you're fine. Okay, yeah, okay you can open it. your eyes. I'm just holding it so now what, behind So real my... quick, while you're doing this, are you going to guess right now, or are you going to hand it to Austin, and then you'll both guess at the same time? Internal guess. Oh. And then we'll guess at the same time. Okay. okay. Makes sense. We're definitely not making this up on the spot. <laughs> Wait, I need to make sure. Okay. Okay. What are you, what are you looking for? Um... Well, you're going to know as soon as you pick it up. Okay. You, well, you'll hear something real quick. Oh! So you know you know what's happening. Mm. But I'm just trying to figure out generation. Okay. Yeah. All right. Close your eyes. Okay. Yeah. Here it I comes. Will. All right. Okay. I've got it. it is. Okay. Well, I knew it, but okay. <laughs> okay. I'll, do it, yeah. I'll do it with my eyes. I'll trust time. you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Certainly a little of uh, yep. that yep. kind of action. Um. Okay. So here's the thing, right? So I feel the camera, which is... That's where I had side. to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, let me feel the hinge because obviously I'm used to a particular kind of this phone, but now I'm like, that's not. That's There's no way. Oh, no, but I feel the little, uh-oh. Wait a minute. So there's only two little rubber stoppers instead of four. Oh, do you remember which one has two and which one has four? I had no, to go cameras even, and then no. power button. Can you feel the color? <laughs> yes, I can. I, I can go. feel the color. You can hear it too in the podcast. I think I know which one this is. Okay. All right. So yes. Ready? Oh, yeah. Count it down. Three, okay. two, one. Z, Z flip, flip five two. G. Well, the same thing, right? Z flip two is the five G one. Yeah, that's yeah. the first five G one. Yep. Y- and y- yes. Is, Wait. Ooh, actually, it's not. Oh, that's the first one, isn't it? It's the first one. Uh, you guys actually confused me with that because I forgot there was. The 5G. I also didn't yeah. pick these phones. Well, the 5G I, is the same design as the first one. Yeah. It just added 5G. Yeah. But this is the f- this is the first one with the tiny front screen and the dual cameras. I believe it's the first one just because we would have saved the first one. Okay. Got it. So wait. So do we get a point on that? Yeah, we both get a point. Right? We, got, we okay. heard the little check mark sound. Yes. <laughs> um, this is a good one because we know Austin likes his flip. Are you still... So what's your flip situation now? Flip I keep seeing is you tweet pictures of it. Flip four right oh. now. Uh-huh. I've got the baby blue one. Um, I do need to get a skin for the back because I was uh, flying recently and it was sliding off the, uh, the, <laughs> the airline table because yeah, it's so <laughs> slippery. But uh, I'm on flip uh, flip four now. The matte finish. We saw one in the wild for the first time. Yeah, in oh, San yeah? Francisco, yeah. I've never seen a flip in the wild. I actually see a lot of them these days. Really? Like I was at like a tea shop the other day and I pulled out my flip and the bracelet. she's like, oh, dope. And she pulled hers out. And I was like, yeah, let's go. Weirdest bonding moment. But I, totally, that's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Do you Just, remember the flip... Uh, briefing and hands-on experience yeah that was the worst uh, that was the one where we were all in the same room and everyone only got five minutes with it right oh uh, yeah and they had a limited amount of units so, they, mm-hmm. so everyone was like over each forth. other's shoulders well, trying to this is back when samsung were really terrified after you know the fold had fallen apart so they didn't trust any of us yeah. did somebody break a fold what happened with the fold <laughs> you know i think there was some kind of drama with that it was, oh, a, it was a while ago though couldn't have been me anyway <laughs> all right let's check the next phone uh, I also like when I handed it to you, yeah. fully had my yeah, eyes open. Yeah, so straight <laughs> at next it. time I'm gonna, I'm yeah, gonna. Close your eyes. Well, you put your hand. I'll how put. Do I, how do I pass it without looking at it? I have to see where his hand is. We have okay. to hold hands. Uh, you, you hold your hand out. I'll look at where your hand is and I okay. look away and then hand uh, it to him. Audio listeners, we love you. I yes. promise. Okay. It's, it's way better in video form. All right, my eyes are closed. All right, same. <clears throat> okay, I got the phone. So, is there a skin on this? No. Oh, oh, no, it's not. There's a logo there. Ooh, antenna band. Skins do have logos. 
Okay. Yeah, I know which one it is. Okay. You feel that confident that fast? Yep. Uh oh. Okay. Okay. I'll close my eyes. I'm ready. Okay. Ready. Hand is out. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Pass and it's it. hidden. I, yeah. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Wait. Is this a trick? I don't know. I hope not. Maybe. Let I me. Okay. Hand. Let me just feel really quick. Uh. Okay. I've got my guess. Already. Yes, I got my guess as well. Okay, same. Both quick guesses. You guys sure? There's a couple of quick identifiers for this one that I think are pretty yeah. good giveaways. Okay. So, right. yeah. Ready? I'm going to go three, two, one. Six iPhone plus. 6S Plus. Oh, you did 6S. Oh, I did 6. Oh, yeah. okay. That's actually, that's a good one. How did you tell it's an S? Um, I don't. That was just my guess based oh. on how long we kept the phones. <laughs> uh, <laughs> also, the 6 Plus was uh, silver and I felt pink. You oh, get out of here! You just feel pink. Yeah, I felt no. Oh, okay, I didn't. I just. Oh well, look, it is the S. You can. There's a little badge. Yeah, I got it right. You I didn't even it. know I got it right. I had to look at it. I was like going for like camera bump, and then immediately, okay, I've got that. Then the home button, and yeah. then the mm-hmm. headphone jack. I started out. with the logo, which is glossy, and I thought there was a skin on the phone because it was, mm. and that's how I realized it was metallic on the outside. So it wasn't yeah. a seven; it was definitely a six or six S. Yeah. And then antenna bands. I felt the size of the plus, and the yeah, it was easy. Yeah. Dead giveaway. All right, next. Last but not least is a segment from a two-hour podcast that we recently did with Hassan Minaj, uh, artist, creator, uh, writer, comedian. He does a lot of stuff, obviously, but this is one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had, period, in my life. There's so much to pick from here. It's one of my favorite episodes ever, and it's a big reason we're going to keep doing podcasts like this. So, me and Hassan. Can I ask you guys a question that I wrote down? Oh, you have... Is this what the, is the post-its the, are here? Well, this, well, yeah. Know. I'll let you, yeah, go ahead. Go for please, it. Please, please do. I'm ready. Wait, Mar- <laughs> wait, wait, Marquez, Marquez, are you? Are Flip you? the script on me, yeah. Okay. Go for it. Okay. So the reason why people might be like, yo, what, you know, Hassan Minhaj, Marquez, this is, like, this is the crossover I never knew. <laughs> I can see the concept. I can see it, yeah. Yeah. So the reason why I actually took the time, I, I mean this sincerely, I'm genuinely a fan of what you guys do here. Thank and, you. Um, there is a level, and the reason why um, I'm getting older and I only have so much time to do media promotion, interviews, meetings, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But you guys, what you guys have done here that I really admire is a level of discernment and reasoning and nobility to what is otherwise a very um, grift-centric medium. And one of the, the things that I felt with media, and I'm saying this personally, you know, as someone who came up in comedy on the daily show patriot act is news media quickly careened off of the the highway very quickly and it is metastasized so quickly from stage one to stage four just mm-hmm. awful cancer where it's like not a great ecosystem yeah for sure and the the grifters that were there was maybe one to three of them in the media ecosystem, almost like hydras where you chopped off those three heads and 12 have emerged. Mm -hmm. I feel like YouTube has also had that as well. There was a cuteness and a quaintness that the YouTube that I came up on when I first started doing stand-up comedy between 2004 and 2010, there was a real authenticity to it. And now there's a bunch of just algorithm hackers that are kind of just manipulating you through emotion um, insanity and um, craziness. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you guys have somehow maintained this like core ethos through all of it and yeah. succeeded. 
mm-hmm. succeeded. And I, I was like, I want to spend my time being around people like that rather than. I, pre- I appreciate yeah. that. I think a key part of what you said was timing. So 2004 yeah. to 2010. Yeah. So it, one of the. One of the crazy things that I've seen so often, how old is your kid, by the way? I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Okay. I, a lot of a lot of surveys I've seen of like kids you ask today, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. An alarming number of them say either a YouTuber yeah. or, or, a, or social media famous or something like that. Yeah. And I think it's kind of luck and, and timing that when I started doing this, which is 2008, 2009, yeah. uh, the YouTube Partner Program didn't exist and there were zero people doing this as a job. So if you wanted to to manipulate YouTube or to, to game the algorithm or whatever, you were doing it for the views and for the fun of that, yeah. not for money, there were zero dollars involved. Okay. And then, so that was fun. And that was, that was a whole section of like how YouTube was built by creators who were like, I have something to share. Let me see how many people I can share this with. And that yeah. was like the, the beginnings of it. Yeah. And that at some point we had obviously the YouTube partner program, monetization happens, we get ads. Now there's this added element of, I would like to see how much money I can make from this. And that's like a real new thing that emerged from that. Yeah. And so now you do see this twist of like, yeah, I'm going to game the algorithm so that I can maximize revenue. And that's a different version of gaming YouTube than I want to just see how many views I want to see if I can get on trending. I want to see if my idea is worthy of eyeballs. And I think that slight difference is probably around the 2010 era that you're referencing, which is like, I feel like that's when YouTube changed. And I'm I'm lucky to have started in the pre-monetization era where my intentions are pure. (laughs) <laughs> right. Just, I want to make the best videos I possibly can and make the channels that I want to subscribe to. And it happened to sort of grow in the background as I was making videos. I was also going to class and, and playing sports and other things like that. And so now it's like it happens to be a full time job, but we kind of treat it the same way as it started. Yeah. How did you not lose your head and lose your way as you look to your left and your right and you, say you put out a product review video and a competitor is a little less uh, nuanced and gentle than say you are. So their, Mm -hmm. their thumbnail is why the new Google pixel seven sucks, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mm -hmm. it's like, it's sensational or like why the new Apple watch is garbage and it's all caps. And do you ever feel that thing where you're like, Oh man, they're, they're coming. Yeah, I do. And I feel that is a good, it's a good question because there's, there's a lot of uh, I do see comments for people are like, I appreciate that you didn't oversimplify. Yeah. And I, I see those comments and I appreciate that. And I know that there are people who, who do notice that. But also it's like tech is, is so good these days. It's really genuinely hard to find an actually bad product. And so I think what's happening is there are, like you said, there's going to be a guy who's just like, this product sucks. And that, I, I, by the way, I, I do disagree with your take there. Overall, okay, we'll get to that. Yeah, we're, like, we're gonna we're gonna get to that. <laughs> we'll get yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess my point is like I think these are people trying to differentiate their videos rather than their takes on the product. So there's gonna be a hundred videos on the Pixel. So yeah. if, if eighty of the first videos of the people who got it all all have come to the same conclusion, which is like I've used this phone, it's a B plus. It's pretty good. And you <laughs> arrive and you're like, I need to make a video that somehow gets views and stands out. If you just show up with the same, it's good. 
people aren't going to watch it and click it. So you need to yeah. find something that you can latch onto and pull that down and be like, I need to focus on this. This phone sucks and here's why. And people will click that video. And they might not stay because you can't necessarily deliver on that, but yeah. people will click that video. And I think that's what people are drawn to. I uh, think also real quick, not necessarily that there are bad there's plenty of bad tech products. Okay, it's fine. There sure. are yeah. so yeah, that's many thank you, thank you. I didn't want to. Do, I was I like, know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. There are so many tech products. Yeah. And since we're large enough that we generally can get our hands on them, like we're gonna cover the things that we know look more interesting to us, and like generally are gonna be a more positive video because like we want to have fun making that video. We yeah. want to enjoy this piece of tech. We don't find the bad product as often because it's more like. Hey, here's this. We'd like to do a sponsored review with you. And we're like, that looks really boring. Yeah. We don't want to do that. We're not going to go out and do some video on it or in general make super negative God. videos on that. I wanted to actually apply to be a correspondent for MKBHD. I had a sub show that okay. I wanted to pitch you guys. Sure. Um, and I thought it'd be really great. <laughs> okay. And I think the audience would really appreciate it. It's called okay. This Shit Doesn't Work with Hassan Minhaj. I, yeah. And so it's just like a, it's like a YouTube short show. Uh -huh. So you throw it to me, go, you know, Marquez is like, I want to throw it over to our, you know, senior tech correspondent, Hassan Minhaj. He's Hassan, in the field. Take it away. And I go, hey guys, it's Hassan Minhaj. I'm here for This Shit Doesn't Work with Hassan Minhaj. Um, today I'm reviewing the Canon Inkjet 5870. Um, <laughs> as you say, it's, it's just, uh, you look at the box, three steps and it's ready to go. Say so pull it out, uh, you connect to Wi-Fi, and uh, you just hit print. You just hit print. <laughs> like the box, you just hit, you just hit print. Then I just take a sledgehammer. And, <laughs> and then it's, it doesn't work with how someone has. supply of yeah, that would work for As that. someone who did end user work yeah, with yeah. printer stuff, I yeah. love this all. And every yeah. week we'd have, hey guys, how's man has here um, with the Microsoft Surface. The Microsoft Surface says it's easy, you can pull out the tab tablet and you know and you can game on the go mm. here we go let me just set it up mm -hmm. and you just connect to wi-fi and um let me just pull out the town again and then you can just you write on it just as simple as <laughs> it's just as, <laughs> it's just as simple as it's really just simple and this is the beauty of yeah that. and it's then just, I, I, I just take a baseball bat and just it's so and funny then, yeah. okay there are so many in tech it's like there are so many stories in tech where it's like there will be pieces of tech that are awful and then the rest of the tech around it is like pretty good. Yeah. And I'm like trying to tell the story of the device and I'm yeah. like giving it. And the other thing is like, I know a lot of people who work for tech companies and they're trying really hard. They are. They sincerely. They yeah. want the things to work. But yeah. oftentimes, like an example this which is perfect for this, which yeah. this segment would be perfect. The MetaQuest <laughs> Pro. Okay. This shit doesn't work. It's bad. Okay? okay. The whole tablet is bad. But instead of approaching it I as like- I appreciate the honesty. Thank you. Okay. It like, is. Thank you. It's 1500 bucks. It's bad. It doesn't work most of the time. Okay. But I thought a more interesting story would be, we, like the company has changed their name to Meta. Like we, there's more things to evaluate here yeah. than just the one bad product. Sure. So like I have info about the product in, in the episode, in the video, mm -hmm. which is like, okay, this, it doesn't really work well, but the idea is in the future, this gets better and this, this point we could evolve at into in the future could be cool. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm trying to like tell that story and, and evaluate how we got here and the trajectory towards the future. But along the way, we definitely need the short of Hassan slaps, like destroying the headset. Like I, I this mean, version you should not buy. Yes. It's bad. Yeah. It so work. my issue is, and yeah. again, I'm like, comedy is an art form. We are the lowest form of entertainers. So there's probably like singers, actors, you know, musicians, Comedians were down here. We're right above magicians, um, <laughs> and uh, pretty far ahead of clowns. But we're we're slightly above sure. magicians and clowns. Sure, yeah. So we're, we're 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 we are an art form of the people. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And my problem is, is with technology, it's always sold as it's easy as one, two, three. Okay, so we wanted to do a segment that was called uh, the commercial versus reality. Yes. Because so often can there's I, a- Can I be the correspondent to do this? I, because I'm a man of the people. I'm holding you up on this. This uh, is perfect, yes. Because there's so many commercials that are just like, look, here's an example of like, a, here's The Rock asking Siri for these seven things in a row and it just does them all. And yeah, you're like, yeah. damn, maybe Siri's pretty good. Yeah. And we just turn around and we take that exact thing he asked it to do and we try that exact task. Thank and you. And it will not work the way it did in the commercial. Thank you. It just won't. I've been vindicated. This is won't. all I've been asking. Yeah. <laughs> people, people are always like, Hassan, it doesn't work because you're bad. You're bad with technology. No, it's just the tech is hard. Tech is hard. It, when it works, it's beautiful. Sometimes it does. Sometimes sure. it does work. Sure. And I love when tech works. And I think about tweeting this all the time. Tech is so great when it works, but the when it works part holds so much water there. Bingo. Because it just doesn't work. Bingo. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, that has been it for this episode of Waveform. A little bit of a throwback, but I think a really fun one, and I'm glad we did this. We should be back next week to your regularly scheduled programming, ideally, if all goes well. And uh, also, let me know what other guests you think would make good waveform guests specifically people you want to hear from conversations with things like that maybe people you just want to know if they type fast or not also i am wearing the super limited edition nkbhd holiday sweater get it while you can because supplies will not last very long i can tell you that i've seen the numbers you guys are picking them up quick shop.mkbhd.com but either way that's been it for this week thanks for watching and listening and subscribing and we'll catch you soon peace Waveform is produced by Adam Molina and Ellis Rovin. We are a member of the Vox Media Podcast Network, and our intro-outro music is by Vainsell. Cell.